what is the Lord's plan and what is the Lord's program for his saved people, for his redeemed people in Christ? What is his vision and his purpose for the way in which you and I should interact together as the people of God? Welcome to Encounter the Truth with Jonathan Griffiths. I'm Steve Hiller. Glad you're with us today as we continue our series through the book of 1 Peter. It's called Faith Under Fire. And if you've missed any of the broadcasts in our series, come and listen online. That's EncounterTheTruth.org. But today we're looking at verses 22 to 25 and a message called A Call to Love. And Jonathan, that's a a really big question that you just uh, asked us to examine right there. What is the vision? What is the way? that we should interact together as the people of God. Well, as we study what the New Testament says about the Christian life and about Christian community, one theme stands out perhaps above and beyond all other themes, and that is the theme of love. Christian people are to be marked by love for one another in a way that is countercultural, in a way that is uh, sacrificial, in a way that is truly Christ-like. Christian community is meant to be marked by love. And we know often, of course, that our Christian community can fall short of that, and and we don't love one another as we ought. But that is the call of the Word of God, and that is the design of God for his saved people. As we mentioned a moment ago, we're in the book of 1 Peter, where he writes about this in chapter 1, verses 22 to 25 is where we're focusing today. So grab a Bible and meet us there as we begin our message, A Call to Love. Here is Jonathan. Well, it is true to say, I think, that every social vision has a goal in view, a dream for what society should look like, whether it is the dream of the socialist utopia or the dream of the liberal capitalist realm or that of the feudal kingdom, each of them has an outcome in mind, a vision for what society should be and for how people should behave. Well, knowing that, we're prompted to ask, what is the Lord's plan, and what is the Lord's program for his saved people, for his redeemed people in Christ? What is his vision and his purpose for the way in which you and I should interact together as the people of God? What is to be our distinctive mark as a people and as a community. Now, if we were to seek to answer that question in the simplest possible terms, if we were to attempt to give a one-word answer, the answer would inevitably be this, without question, according to Scripture, the answer would be love. You and I, we are to be a people of love. We are to be marked by love. Our community is to be characterized by love. Our interactions are to be filled with love one for another. Love. That is the centerpiece of God's vision and his plan for us as a people redeemed in Christ. For us as subjects of his great kingdom. For us as members of his new society. Now, in the first half of chapter 1 of his letter, Peter has outlined for us the privilege and the wonder of our salvation. And at verse 13, you may remember, he changed gears and he turned to look at our response to this great salvation. What will it look like for us to be a redeemed people? He called us to a personal response that would be marked 
by a sober expectancy, by holy living, and by reverent fear. You may remember that if you were with us. That was last time and the previous verses. Now Peter zooms out just a little from our personal response of heart, from our personal discipleship, and he looks increasingly to the community of faith and to the community implications of our salvation. He looks to our interactions one with another, and he says to us that we are to be collectively and in our community life a people of love. As he issues this call to love, he grounds the call very firmly in two gospel realities, two gospel anchors. We are to be a people marked by love one for another, first of all, because we have been made pure, and second, because we have been born again. You'll see both of those in the text there. Now, these are very, very rich truths, and they do shape profoundly this call to love, and we need to consider each one of them carefully together. You and I, we are to be a people of love, first of all, because we have been made pure. Notice verse 22 with me once again. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. It's an obvious thing to say that you only cleanse something that actually needs cleansing. We all know it's a bit of a worrying sign psychologically if someone obsessively cleans that which is already spotless and pure. The gospel of Jesus Christ centers, of course, on a great work of cleansing that was accomplished on the cross of Calvary 2,000 years ago. And the Bible makes it clear that this costly work of cleansing was absolutely necessary for us. The Bible teaches us that our hearts have been profoundly defiled by sin. We have chosen and embraced impurity of heart by doing and thinking and saying that which we know to be wrong. We actually, we don't need to be convinced of this. We know it full well. Our conscience regularly tells us that it is so. And the heart of the Christian message, the heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ is a message of cleansing from sin. We were defiled, and Jesus has made us clean. That cleansing, it comes as we receive the gospel of Jesus Christ. Notice how it's framed here in the text. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. In the gospel, you and I hear a call to respond to the finished work of Christ, a call to repent and to believe. And as we receive that message by faith, and as we turn from disbelief to belief, from self-worship, which is the heart of sin, to Christ-worship, from resistance to the things of Christ, to joyful acceptance of what he has said and what he has done, we receive by faith all that Jesus did for us at the cross. Now, in verse 22, Peter refers to this response as obedience to the truth, echoing actually what he said in verse 2, where he referred to a response of obedience to Jesus Christ that is tied to the sprinkling with his blood. This is the same thing that Paul elsewhere in the New Testament refers to as the obedience of faith. And we need to understand by that the submission of heart and mind to the truth of the gospel. This is simply receiving the gospel in heart and in mind, no longer resisting. And as we receive the gospel by faith, the gospel brings purification. It brings cleansing. 
This cleansing comes through the application of the blood of Jesus Christ to the defiled human heart, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. Now, the blood of Jesus Christ shed at the cross is God's great cleansing agent. His blood was shed to pay the price of our sin, and in spiritual terms, before God the Father, his blood brings cleansing. This was, of course, a very costly cleansing. It was no light or easy thing for the defiled human heart to be made clean in the sight of a holy God. The very Son of God had to come down from heaven, and he had to suffer, and he had to die. He had to take on human flesh and then shed human blood that our guilt might be paid for, that our conscience might be cleansed. And all this, this grand project of redemption, it was for a great purpose. Peter tells us it was for the sake of love. Now, before we go forward and explore that purpose together, I want to pause for a moment here, and and I'd like to take a moment to address those who may never have received that cleansing personally. It may be that a number here among us, a number listening, well, you're a little stuck on the reality of cleansing as we see it in the text. You're you're a little stuck on the fact of cleansing, on, on the mechanism of cleansing, because as we read this and as we see it here in what Peter has written, you recognize that this is something you yourself have never received, you've never experienced. You hear this talk of being made clean, you, you, you hear reference to the defilement of sin, of this sense of impurity, of the purification that Jesus Christ can bring, and, and you're focused there for a moment because today you feel acutely the defilement of your own heart before God. You have a keen awareness of this. If you're honest about it and you examine your heart, you feel frankly unclean because of sin, because of the words you have spoken because of the things you have thought, because of the actions you have undertaken. And and you don't actually need the Bible to tell you that these things are defiling, that they render you unclean in the sight of God. Your conscience is telling you that very clearly today, and you're aware of it. And as you reflect upon that, you sense that you would love nothing more today than to be made clean. If you could be personally assured of cleansing of heart and of soul— To you, that would be the greatest gift, that would be the most wonderful experience, and the most precious possession. Now, if that's you, if I've just described you, and I suspect there will be a number in that situation today, let me just say to you as simply as I possibly can, that the offer of cleansing, to which Peter refers here, it is for you, it is available to you. Here in verse 22, Peter is writing to Christians who have received, who have already experienced this, and he reminds them that they have purified their souls by obedience to the truth. But the invitation, it is open today to you. You may likewise purify your soul, to use Peter's language, by obedience to the truth. And that's not to say that you earn it by any kind of action, but you receive it as a gift as you submit your heart and you submit your mind to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, he has achieved everything that is needed for the cleansing of your heart and soul. He's done it all, and it is there for you to receive by faith. And the question for you then is simply this, nothing more than this, will you become obedient of heart and mind to the truth of his word? 
Will you lay down your arms, your weapons of resistance to him? And will you receive his message? Will you trust today in his saving work at the cross of Calvary? Will you receive by faith the cleansing of your soul? You're listening to Encounter the Truth with Jonathan Griffiths and a message entitled, A Call to Love, part of our series, Faith Under Fire. And we'll get back to the message in just a moment. But if you joined us a little bit late or if you have to leave early or you just want to go back and listen again to a broadcast, you can do that by coming to our website, EncounterTheTruth.org. You can also listen if you have the Encounter the Truth app. Both are free and great ways to connect with this ministry and with Jonathan's teaching. One other way you can do that, it's the YouTube channel. You can like and subscribe to the Encounter the Truth YouTube channel and get updated anytime we post new content there. But it's a great way to not only listen to, but watch Jonathan teach God's Word. Again, look for Encounter the Truth on YouTube, where you'll find a link through our website, EncounterTheTruth.org. But however you've connected with us, we're glad you're here. And all of these ministry opportunities come through your generosity. So thank you for giving to and supporting Encounter the Truth. We want to give you, as our way of saying thanks, a book that Jonathan has picked out called The Definition of Christianity. In this book, scholars David Gooding and John Lennox take a look at the book of Luke and the book of Acts and really explore who gets to determine what Christianity means and how we can know what the original message of Christianity is, even despite the centuries of traditions and conflicting ideas. Again, we want to send you this book, The Definition of Christianity, is our way of saying thank you for your support. Find out more or give online at EncounterTheTruth.org or call us at 1-833-99-TRUTH. That's 1-833-998-7884 or EncounterTheTruth.org. Back to the message. Here is Jonathan. We used to sing a simple hymn. It was often used at the famous Billy Graham Crusades. If, if you remember those or experienced them uh, at some time, I remember attending one in Toronto it was at what was at that time the Sky Dome in the mid-90s. It's very memorable. But this put the, the invitation so very well. Maybe you remember it. Just as I am, without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou bidst me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come, I come. Just as I am, though tossed about with many a conflict, many a doubt, fightings and fears within, without, O Lamb of God, I come. Just as I am, thou wilt receive, wilt welcome, pardon, cleanse, relieve, because thy promise I believe, O Lamb of God, I come. I come. Now that's the invitation, and it's put so well. That is, that is the way to come. And it, it may be that you personally need to come to him just as you are today, that you might receive from him a welcome, a pardon, cleansing, relief. Won't you do that? Why wouldn't you do that? What would hold you back from doing that even today? Won't you take that step? And then know with confidence, the confidence that comes from the word of God, that your soul has been purified. 
The wonderful thing about the cleansing work of Jesus Christ is that it is a definitive cleansing that cannot be undone. The language here in the text actually emphasizes that in the original. The verb here, having purified, it's in a form, in a tense in the original, the perfect tense, that speaks of a definitive work with ongoing permanent implications. So often we clean things only to find that they are made unclean again very, very quickly. If you have small children at home or not so small children at home, you know this, or a messy spouse at home, uh, perhaps, I don't know, you may know this. The tile floor in the front hallway, you know, is vacuumed and mopped with great care, and it, it just gleams for a few shining moments. And then a young wearer of muddy boots runs in enthusiastically and out comes the mop again. The car gleams as you come out of the car wash and you drive through a single muddy puddle and it's as though the car wash never took place. This actually happened to me this week. It's a little bit fresh for me, a little bit raw. Finally got to the car wash after a long time of needing to get to the car wash. And the lineups are always so long, right? And you drive by and you think, I can't wait for that. Anyway, I got through and um, the car really gleamed for about 20 seconds. And literally, I kid you not, at the exit of the car wash, I think they did this on purpose to drum up more business, there there was this massive brown muddy, it was like a lake. And the car was beautiful, I drove through and then it was done. It's like it had never happened, the money had never been spent, the time had never been wasted. (laughs) You see, things in this world, they rarely stay clean for very long, but the cleansing work of Christ at Calvary is not like that. You see, his cleansing work is not susceptible to being undone. No, it is permanent. Having purified your souls, perfect tense, done, complete, not undoable. Now, getting clean, being purified, it always has a purpose. The house is furiously cleaned up to a level not seen in a long time. You think the in-laws are coming. Think of a hospital operating room, the careful cleaning of all surfaces, the sterilization of the instruments, the doctors and nurses scrubbing up as they go in. You might observe all that from a gallery if it's an operating room with a gallery. And knowing little or nothing about the workings of a hospital, you would watch all this in ignorance and think, I I know that something important is going to happen here with all this cleansing going on. Or you see a person who who perhaps works with their hands, who has a, a job that just happens to get them grimy and dirty. Maybe the mechanic who knows what it is to be covered in oil or the miner. Think of the old days in the coal mines. Or someone who works today in landscaping. They rush home in a hurry and they shower and scrub up and then maybe put on some smart clothes, a suit and a tie or whatever. They look clean and smart and you know that they must be going somewhere significant and meaningful. Cleansing always has a purpose. What is God's purpose in your cleansing and in my cleansing? The answer is clear cut actually in the text. According to verse 22, the express purpose of our cleansing is sincere brotherly love having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. Now, that's very striking, isn't it? That's very interesting. If you hadn't read that but asked yourself the question, why did Jesus cleanse my heart? Why did he purify my soul? What answer might you have given? You know, you might have said, well, to make me happier, uh, to make me feel less guilty, to free me up to live a, a life of fulfillment, to make me ready for heaven. 
Well, what does God say in his word? He purified our soul for a sincere brotherly love. Now, that's very, very interesting. And it tells us a few things. It tells us that this cleansing is needed. It is necessary if we're going to be able to love in that way. And it tells us as well that our brotherly love one for another matters a great deal to God. It is important in his sight. See, if the Lord Jesus Christ came down to heaven, came to earth below, took on flesh, lived among us, suffered and died in our place for the cleansing of our souls so that for the sake of producing sincere brotherly affection among us, then friends, here is the message plain and simple. Our brotherly and sisterly affection, one for another, how we love one another as believers in Christ, that matters to God more than you and I can possibly fathom or dream. And friends, as I see that in the text and as I hear that in the word of God, I do find myself wondering if you and I care about brotherly and sisterly affection in the way that God cares about brotherly and sisterly affection. I find myself wondering if we really share the heart of God in this matter. You see, I think we tend to believe that other things matter a little bit more. I think we come into Christian community carrying a list of requirements and expectations. I think we, all of us, most of us tend to do that. You know, we, we have relational and emotional needs that we want to see met. We have a theological checklist, and it's not wrong to be theologically discerning, but we want to make sure that our doctrinal concerns are satisfied. We feel perhaps that we have some gifts to use, and we want to see our gifts employed and recognized. <laughs> And so easily we come to Christian community with a set of expectations for others and of others. And we are looking to see, aren't we, if our expectations are met and if our needs are being addressed. Now, we all do that to some extent, I think. If you are someone who is church shopping, as it were, looking around, seeking to find a church and you're going to different places, you may well be thinking along those lines to some extent. And as we engage in Christian community over the long haul, those interests and those concerns, they don't really go away entirely. But with that outlook in mind, knowing that this is how we naturally think, I am just so struck by the profound priority here of love. You see, the outlook of the gospel moves us from thinking about the satisfaction of our own needs and the meeting of our own requirements within Christian community, and it moves us from that paradigm and teaches us instead to prioritize love for others, loving one another well. Brotherly love, sisterly love matters so much to God, matters more to him than perhaps we realize or recognize, certainly matters more to him than it does naturally matter to us. Our love one for another matters so much to God, in fact, that he gave his son to purify us to be a people of love. Jonathan Griffiths here on Encounter the Truth and a message entitled, A Call to Love, part of our series, Faith Under Fire. And if you missed any of the broadcasts in our series, come and listen online. Our website is EncounterTheTruth.org. Well, whether you listen to this radio program on the radio, online, or even through the Encounter the Truth app, all that we do is made possible through your generosity. And as you give a gift of any amount this month, we want to say thank you by sending you a book. It's called The Definition of Christianity, written by David Gooding and John Lennox. And uh, Jonathan, who is David Gooding and John Lennox? 
Well, these are two very brilliant scholars, and I'm I'm so thrilled to be able to offer this book this month because I think you're going to find their scholarly engagement and their intellectual ability so stimulating as you read this book and as you go through this study. David Gooding, who's actually now passed away, was a professor at Queen's University, Belfast, and a, an extraordinarily able Bible scholar. In fact, David contributed an essay to the first book I ever published, so he has a special place in my heart. John Lennox, who co-authored this book, is a professor of mathematics at the University of Oxford, and he was actually at Oxford when I was an undergraduate there, and I remember listening to his teaching and to his engagement with the questions surrounding the interface of faith and culture and being absolutely mesmerized. He's a brilliant scholar. He's a profoundly able apologist. And I think that you're going to find this book hugely interesting and very, very stimulating. Well, the book is called The Definition of Christianity, and we'd love to send you a copy as our way of saying thank you for financially supporting Encounter the Truth this month. Give online at EncounterTheTruth.org or call us at 1-833-998-7884. That's 1-833-99-TRUTH or online at EncounterTheTruth.org. For Jonathan Griffiths and our producer, Mark Breda, I'm Steve Hiller. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time.